Hi and welcome to The Passion PT. I'm Dan Brophy, a creative wellness coach, and I'm here to break down the creative process into simple techniques that you can use to develop your practice and achieve your goals faster. The Passion PT MO is that everyone is creative, and by developing and enhancing your creativity, you can improve how you work each day, you can nurture a hobby or side hustle, or even use creative play as a wellness tool. So join me as I share inspiration, thought starters, and tools to enhance and train your focus and expression a little bit more each day to achieve your best possible output. In today's episode, I'll be talking to author and writer of the Sad Mum Lady blog, Ash Davenport, who this week is releasing her very first book through Alan and Unwin. So many people dream of writing a book, myself included, but so few actually get around to doing the task. So I wanted to know all about the most practical elements of how to do it. How much time did she dedicate to it each week? how she outsourced professionals for feedback at various stages along the journey. Also, I heard one of the very best tools that I've ever encountered for the purpose of getting out of your own way and overcoming your inner critic. If you don't already follow Ash on Instagram, I thoroughly recommend it. It is so entertaining. And this Tuesday, the 16th of June, she's doing a live Q&A. That's Sydney time, but it's 7 p.m. Tuesday night, the 16th of June. She'll be doing a live Q&A, reading us all a bedtime story, and also answering questions about her process and the writing of the book live on Instagram Live. So check that out. And if you're not already following me on Instagram and YouTube, check it out at Dan Brophy, where you'll find full-length interviews and excerpts from all these conversations in video form. I'll also be sharing with you little thought starters and tools and bite-sized tips to enhance your creative process. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can, share it with someone that may find it inspiring. Please enjoy my chat with Sad Mum Lady, also known as Ash Davenport. I always start by asking, well, first of all, hi, and thank you for having a chat. And I love that we can do this. This is so great. I also love that we have matching, like matching pink scrolls across our tops. This is very cute. Yeah. Pleasure mm. is yours, and mine says sincerely. sincerely yours, love that. Uh, we're still that couple, <laughs> <laughs> the it couple that never was. <laughs> um, I uh, well, I always ask by start by asking people when someone says, "Hey, what do you do?" What do you tell them? I tell them I'm first of all I'm hanging on by a thread, um, so I usually lead with that, and then I and then I sort of fill-in writer, parent, and I, I always talk down writer. I'll say, oh, but, you know, just a copywriter um, for businesses. But I have a book coming out. That's normally how it goes. How long... <laughs> so I'll get better. In terms of the getting closer and closer to being a real published writer, how long ago did that become an easier thing to, to say or to be able to lead with? I've, I'm working on a book. I've got a book coming out. Did you, did you have some sense of imposter syndrome slowly fading away as you were getting closer to being externally validated by having a, you know, it definitely happening? Mm, I, 
I haven't got there yet. I still, um, it still feels unreal and, um, yeah, I suppose it's becoming more real because I've had a few interviews and that sort of thing, but I'm, I find myself being like almost apologetic. Like, I, I'm sorry, you, you've been forced to talk to me about this, but trying not to be that because that's not really going to sell books. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like I'm going to go from like bumbling, doubtful, um, new author to just complete monster, like overnight. So I'm, I'm waiting for that shift. Yeah, looking forward to it. 2021, that'll be a year that you really tip. Yeah. Mm. And monster in like a great way, in, in, you know, still being kind and thoughtful and and respectful, but just really owning my... Um, my job, I suppose, and like my point of view and valuing that myself. So I'm really working towards that. I want that to be a thing. Like a, like a Gwyneth Paltrow-esque monster. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's kind of like dead behind the eyes. and In, impeccably, <laughs> impeccably groomed, really. <laughs> I love Gwyneth. Me She's too. Amazing. Oh, I've been... Oh, in the bandwagon and bagger, but then I'm like, she's actually so great. I've been pro Gwyneth. A couple of eps. Oh, I watched the whole season. I've uh, I'm I've been pro Gwyneth since before it was cool, and I have really been yeah. her champion because she she speaks multiple languages. She looks like. Uh, a, a princess. She is so highly educated. She is a really good actor. She's an incredible businesswoman. She's a great writer. She's got a great sense for, you know, um, I suppose pioneering and, you know, new things. I've, um, yeah, I've been pro Gwyneth for a while. Yeah, and it's just our own um, innate misogyny, I think, that makes us um, hate on someone who's just really successful and, and kind and happens to be female. I also think that there, she's she's unapologetically successful, and I think if you look at her compared to someone who's infinitely likable, like Jennifer Aniston, you kind of think that Jennifer Aniston always has the sort of the the whiff of poor Jen about her, oh, and so and I think it's Relatable. and yeah, because it's almost like no matter how successful she is now, she's just that relatable you know, friend who just can't get a man or can't get it together. And so she's not, she's just not threatening, but unlike Gwyneth, who's just fucking success and therefore people don't know how to take it. Um, She's like a queen. Yeah. I, uh, I, well, I wanted to, you know, when you were saying that you were being apologetic about having referencing copywriting and, and, but there is a book Talk to me about the last couple of years leading up to, because I'm going to frame this whole, because uh, a lot of people would love to write a book, and I'm going to frame this whole interview around, like, how to write a book in a, in a, in a year or two years or however long you took you to do it, because I feel like that is a dream for so many creatives, especially people who do copywriting, and, you know, the idea of being able to, to channel all of your thoughts into something cohesive that then becomes a... I did the thing and I finally, you know, mm-hmm. got, it, got it all down. And then the idea that someone would want to share those words is even more exciting. Mm-hmm. But leading up to this milestone, what has your last couple of years worth of creative process around writing been from day job stuff to getting better at the art of doing the work that you love to do to then actually going, okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, a book, I guess. 
Um, what did that look like? Well, it started with a blog, which um, was felt really urgent at the time. Like the thing I needed to say when I started that blog felt like I had to say it. So I couldn't wait for a book deal. I had to just put it out there and I had to find other people who felt the same way. So that was called Sad Pregnant Lady. Um, and I was a sad pregnant lady and felt like I wasn't really allowed to feel that um, because people were kind of horrified when I wasn't um, just beaming with joy when whenever it came up in conversation. And so um, that I think was really important. It's like having that sense of urgency, like this is, this is important and this has to come out of me. Um, so that I think that's what, what started to build the momentum, like that, that real fire behind the message, like, um, and it was funny as well, like and people like funny stuff. And I was able to build this following um, on the internet um, through that blog. And it wasn't until I had lunch with um, someone who is, was a, like kind of works in the industry, his name is Michael Williams. He's like, um, was recently the CEO of the Wheeler Center. Mm. And he was our mutual friend, Tam's old boss. So Tam um, sent my a blog or a few of my blogs to him and just kind of wanted him to know like, oh, look, my friend's doing this thing. And he, and he was like, she's great. She needs to write a book. So it wasn't until um, I had, I think it was coffee with him, and he, someone in the industry said, you should write a book. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, my God. It hadn't really occurred to me before that. So then I said to him, well, I've written all these blogs, so I can just hit print, right, and put them all in a book. And he was like, no. <laughs> it's a different thing. Those, the blogs, those are good blogs. Those aren't a book. A book needs to be something else. You need to use those as your jumping off point. So that was a really important message as well. It was like, you can do this, you can't yet. How, that's a really interesting idea because um, blog writing and the book has ended up becoming a collection of essays. So what yeah. is the difference between a blog and an essay? Oh, such a good question. I feel like I could have written, um, I could have written book-worthy blogs. I, I probably probably could write those now, but I just wasn't as um, my writing was at a different level then, and I really um, I've really improved a lot. So I think that was more his message, less that it was a blog, and more that my writing wasn't quite there yet. And what is that? And that's it. Um, what do you think that he saw? Or what was the thing that hooked him, do you reckon? I think it was the point of view and um, the voice being um, like distinct. Mm. And do you think. It was, yeah. Oh, no, go on. Sorry. Well, just that it was. Um, it wasn't like. It was kind of different and different enough to a lot of the other content that was out there on the internet about parenting and that was the world that I was writing about so it had a bit of an edge I suppose because it was different was it and is that to do with the sort of um bittersweet 
tone of voice mm. that you were sort of putting a frame around the most joyful experience from the perspective of someone who's not always in a state of joy? Yes, it was brutal. It was actually like um, some of my pieces were like, how to stop worrying about your baby dying and um, uh, like how to not go completely insane when you're pregnant and just that sort of thing. So the, the stuff that you normally see, if, if it's even slightly in the direction of this is hard, it has the overriding, you know, disclaimer, it's all worth it, I love my kids, don't you worry, I'm doing great. So um, my stuff was like, yeah, I love my kids, well, what's it to you? I want to talk about this. <laughs> it's almost inconsequential to what I really need to talk about. Right now, mm. yeah, exactly. And my kids know I love them, so that's, that's I feel fine about it, you know. Yeah, that's that's great. And do you think there was something once you had set that tone or set the parameters of the exploration through the blog, did that allow you to sort of lean into the humor in a way that you didn't have to worry about how's what are the optics on this going to be like or how's this going to sound because I have already created a safe playpen for myself where I don't need to worry about sounding like reassuring the reader that I'm a good person? Totally. And I also had um, like the luxury of time between when I wrote those blogs and sort of encapsulated that moment um, and then a year or two years went by before I started writing the book and I was able to actually like see what she, meaning me, two years ago was really feeling and trying to cover up with humour so that was really interesting and I think quite fruitful for the book. I was able to see those jokes but see what they were hiding and then strip away that armour, see the real soft hurt woman in behind that blog and then write jokes from there because they were better jokes. Yeah. And it was just more real and I think a lot more relatable. I, I think the blog was great. It really served a purpose, but um, the book just was about 10 layers deeper than where I was and where I was prepared to go when I was blogging. There's something so wonderful about because one of the things that I really believe in is just being very bite-sized with your aims when you're trying to tackle any sort of creative mountain because if, you, if someone were to, to set the goal too lofty even if it's where you end up if the idea of like if you'd never written a blog and you decide that you were gonna i'm gonna write a book it's just so intimidating and so the, it just seems so impenetrable as a task but the idea of i'm gonna write a blog and especially coming at it from the perspective of i'm just writing it because i've got to do it otherwise i'm going to go nuts is a really good bite-sized way to just get your feet wet to work out what your tone is, to just get the thing out of you without even any great sense of self-reflection. You were just like just mm. dropping and dash and just, you know, put it, putting it out there and just seeing what you liked, what the, what the world liked. And then in that process of, of almost um, building a mood board for the world that you were entering through the writing, you were then able to mm. sort of hone it and develop it based on uh, the process that had already taken place as opposed to sometimes I think the urge is 
people try and do that process internally and it becomes a bit hard to compartmentalize it or sort it out if you don't first just do a big old brain dump. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that's so true. And you could start it even as an Instagram. Like that was the other thing. I had lunch with a friend the other day and she, she's she got like half a book and she's never written any anything really before. It's not, it's not like her profession or anything. It's like her first venture into the world of it. And um, she is really terrified and doesn't think it's good and blah, blah, blah. And we, were, we basically got to the end of the lunch and she was like, I'm actually just going to start an Instagram first. Like this is a lot about like my grandmother who migrated from Greece and um, a lot of um, conversations with her. Um, that, that's sort of the basis of the book. So why don't I just um, start with some little things that my yaya says, you know, and like build, just build the idea, see what people like. And it suddenly was just fun, you know, as opposed to like this big looming stack of pages under her bed that she didn't know where to go with, you know, just like baby steps. It's a great way to road test what your audience responds to as well because sometimes when you're really in it you can't quite tell what people are really going to love and then you can actually Mm. see just even in terms of engagement in a digital space like a blog or Instagram people Mm. might really turn up to something that you didn't think was that big a deal and you're quite surprised so true did that happen yeah well Um, there's the other side of that, just for anyone who's not social media savvy and really wants to do this and has no interest in doing social media, because those people are out there. I feel <laughs> what, like, what? Yeah. yeah um, well, I've learned this from my publisher. It's like half their authors are really active on social media and that's a big part of their brand. The other half don't even know what who is. And they're, and they're just like, living the artist life and they're just in their own world they're producing these um these amazing books and it works that way as well i just think it's like that way take i think it's kind of you need to be quite extreme in that direction you know and be a very authentic like no social media person for for it to work (laughs) i don't know but yeah for me it was easier to just kind of take that um just start with the bite-sized version and just build it up from there yeah it also helps to i suppose yeah there's there's so many ways to go about it i think if people just like lean into your strengths you know i think if social media is a nightmare because for some people it just is it's so counterintuitive to some people then um don't force like maybe if it's not a sense of joy then just leave it right alone or hire someone else to do it or something like that but if you are playing around in the space you may as well totally i mean another writer who's who's more that very not into social media loves is really um has been working on this book for a long time really um (laughs) sort of encouraged her to put something on social media and she did like was like five slides a very tiny font of like pages condensed into these tiny squares i'm like not even your mum is gonna read that like your mum can't see that have you seen the text size on your mum's phone like it's yeah it's half the time yeah <laughs> like so 
it's not. She kind of is trying to do something that's just not natural to her. So I'm like, no, you should just be like cold calling publishers and going and reading your stuff at those little um, open mics and, you know, if they ever come back, I hope they do. But yeah, different. Just going that more like traditional route. Mm, different strokes for different folks. Um, exactly. When you in, in the lead up to writing a blog, for, for context, what was your background prior? You know, did you work in a writing space? Had you studied any form of communications to, in order to even be, have the tools to be able to express yourself through blog writing in the first place? Yeah, well, I was, um, what did I do? I, I mean, I did a bit of writing in my first job in media. I was working like at this, I feel like it was just totally illegal now when I think back to it, but it was um, like a, a production house that sold um, like free sports content that you got from different places, packaged it into a show, had it voiced, and then sent it to like the Middle East. <laughs> and they bought it. <laughs> it was bizarre. But I would write a little bit on um, for the scripts and that sort of thing. So even though I was like, you know, the road to London, 2012. Like I would write, <laughs> but it was good practice because you're just like writing every day. Like I, so, I wrote five days a week these terrible scripts for like you know at least a year. Great. So that probably helped. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, but I've always loved writing. I've journaled my whole life, and um, I used to write plays when I was little. I used to write. Um, I'd write out my favourite movies. Um, I forced all of my friends to do a theatre production of Muriel's Wedding when I was like 12. And I wrote out like five scripts of the movie. Like I didn't do all of it, but I did, you know, the Tanya scenes, because that's all I cared about. <laughs> Is there anything else? But I was like, I do. I've, I've always loved writing. It wasn't until um, only very recently that I it all kind of came together in my mind. Like, oh, shit, I should be doing this. I've been building towards it, like, my whole life, but I just haven't really had the courage to, like, own that at all. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you do some... Uh reflection of of your childhood passions and things that you gravitated towards as a as a younger person often all the clues are there because you can actually it's not until you go to a place of being entrenched in a new passion that you're like yeah. i've actually been doing a version of this since i was a kid i would be doing it for free if i could i i would be always getting so much joy out of playing in that space in one way or another or I'm what I'm doing now is almost an amalgamation of a few things I've loved to do over time because I finally found a way to put it all together so um, that's mm. a, that's such a nice a nice thing to see that the the building blocks have been there did you um mm. did you have to learn like when you were first faced with the notion of writing a blog did you research other writers in the space to know what makes a good blog length, what makes a good blog tone, or was it completely instinctual that allowed you to make those first steps? I knew um, a little bit because I, ha- I had written some listicles and that sort of thing for Mamma Mia. Um, so I did that as my first kind of venturing out, you know, into this 
world of being a writer or trying to be. And so I knew that um, like 30 ways to do this was, you know, I had some basic kind of internet little um, ideas and tips and whatever. So I, I did I did have a um, an instinct for like what's a catchy headline, you know, and how can I break that down for an internet audience. Well, actually, that's so true. Because even thinking back to your earliest blogs, even though you might not have been um, happy with the maturity of the writing or you've been able to become more layered over time, they always had a hook and they always had a strong... Like, I love it when you... Gotta have a gimmick if you... That's like... That's from Gypsy. I feel like that did get really deep in my brain. Like... Hook em in. Yeah. Dad Monday is the name of like my postnatal depression book because I'm like, that's a hook. People are like, oh, it's, she's sad and funny. Ah, okay. Well, that's it. Have- yeah, because it all because I once thought I was going to be a screenwriter, and all the screenwriting books that I ever read, of which I've read, you know, a hundred. There's so much discussion around. You should be able to tell the story from the titling as well I should be able to tell the genre what what to a degree what's going to happen I should it should um, the what's in it for me in terms of as an audience member what I'm going to get by turning up you know even the tone of the tone of the film should be there you know there's sort of um, ways in which you can really give the audience a, a, a small taste of what they're going to get even just in a, a title or a subheading and the idea of sad mum lady is great, or sad pregnant lady, because it's it's a bit haphazard. It doesn't sound like perfect English. So it's like, hey, I'm not perfect. It's basically saying, you know, I, it's a it's a, a mum blog, but not as you know it. It's you know, it's not it's not going to be all you know roses either. It's going to be um, a realistic perspective of that thing. You sort of it's a really clever title, but then within the blogs, I noticed that there are always daring you to to read on you know they always had a a, a singular perspective that was a, a theme related to motherhood that you know had a, a whiff of a cliffhanger about every every sort of um title that you work with it was great one of my essays in the book is called the last thing i will see before i die so i'm like that's pretty okay <laughs> I looked at that one before. I'm like, what the? F- it doesn't even quite make sense. Like, what do you mean? What does she mean? <laughs> I think there's that element of like, it's a little bit wrong. Yes, totally. I say, like, it's just something that's like, oh, she's kind of a mess. Did you? <laughs> did you? Did you? Did you write the thing that you wanted to read but didn't have access to? Absolutely, but I have since discovered more um, like real talk parenting voices out there. Oh, Ali Wong, who's incredible. Did you watch her? I haven't, I haven't seen a Netflix special, no. She's so great. Like she came out after like the year or two after my blog and when, when I was writing the book, basically. Um, so she is brutal times infinity. And so she, she, um, I think, is really paving the way in that, you know, way of talking about parenting. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I just found that very inspiring and like, oh, I'm on to something, you know, mm. like this is what people are looking for. So I'm, I'm glad to join the chorus, you know. 
Um, but let's talk about process for a minute because I, you know, you and I, we're not just host and guest, we're also friends and we do have a, an ongoing dialogue around process, which I think is really supportive, even though we don't have the same creative outlet, but we, I always love exchanging notes with my really active creative friends about, you know, wh- what do you do? What are you inspired by? What are you doing to overcome? You know, what do you do when you, when you want to procrastinate? Talk to me about the process of writing a book from the perspective of of all those traditional things that get in the way of writing, like distraction, procrastination, time wasting, fear of imposter syndrome. What were, what were your biggest hurdles when it came to, to achieving this this goal? Well, the logistics were pretty straightforward. Um, it, they. I I dedicated two whole days a week to writing and that was for about at least a year, I would say. So it was like nine to five, two days a week, I was only working on the book. And that required, because I've got kids and, you know, everyone's got, needs to make money and pay their rent, um, that required like a bit of um, a shift in how my partner and I like spent our money that that year like how um but it was straightforward in that he was just very very supportive and he's like my investor he like he backed me and paid our rent for a year and paid the daycare fees so I was able to like make a little bit of money doing some other bits and pieces but I think um yeah logistically we it was pretty clean cut and just required like a a financial and emotional commitment from myself and I'm so fucking lucky in that I have a partner like that and a partner in to begin with because people don't have partners and they've got kids and they have to try and chase their dreams as well and it's just so it is pretty easy for me in that respect but my major hurdle was I would sit down on my like invested backed day at of the week to produce the book that people say I can I can write and I did not believe that I could write at all. So my major hurdle was getting over the um, the like paralyzing self doubt, which was took a lot of mental gymnastics. Basically, it was um, a process of convincing myself that it was okay to write badly. So that was my little hack in my mind. And it's still, I have to practice it all the time. It's like, uh, give yourself permission to not get it right. And and no one's gonna see this. I still, I still, my brain's like, someone will see it. Someone's gonna see this, you'll be found out. Don't, no, you're looking at that. You're looking at that terrible sentence. Now you know that you're, not good enough or whatever so it's really like just massaging my brain into like this idea that it's a really conscious decision to write really badly and that's just part of the process and so then once I'm able to like break through that barrier I have to write and write and write about um, a subject or an essay idea until I find the in and once I find the in, then I'm able to let it flow from there. And I'll, I'll get there eventually. 
is the is the in like the, the your own hook to what makes it personal or interesting to you yeah it's a way to like a vehicle that's going to carry the idea so i'll be when i'm doing that sort of brain dump about an essay it's i've got the idea in mind so the last thing i will see before i die which is one of the essays in the book i wanted to write about this kind of permanent heavy connection that you have with the person you have a child with and it's kind of beautiful but it's also disgusting like you're so just entrenched together and this intimacy that happens like living together with babies around and birth and all of the, these people get sick and gastro and it's so um it's just so like heavy and overwhelming and funny as well and sort of unexpected that it's an unexpected topic i knew i wanted to talk about that and i knew this incident <laughs> the last thing i will see before i die <laughs> was going to be this central kind of um moment or like the pivotal moment in the story because it was sam having like explosive diarrhea basically <laughs> but I, so I knew I wanted to get to this place and this was the idea um, that I wanted to talk about and um, I just like the explosive diarrhea thing happened on a weekend away so um, I, I started out pretty much writing like minute by minute the weekend this happened he said this I felt this and then my sister and Sam's brother were dating at the time. So I also knew that that was funny and that could maybe feature in some other um, story down the track or whatever. They're not dating anymore. but So they came and stayed with us for like one night during that holiday. So throughout this whole process, I'm like, oh, the story's only 3,000 words or something. So it was like I wrote however many words to get to this place. But... Um, I realised after doing all this minute by minute and writing badly and blah, 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 and sort of working towards this ending, um, that their relationship, my sister's and Sam's brother's, was the in. Like, I, and then I was able, like, I start the essay with them being together. And is this incest? And, like, what, what does this mean? And it's the best thing ever. And here's how family dinners now work and blah, blah, blah. Because basically they were like the younger, hotter versions of me and Sam. Um, so we were kind of faced with our own mortality like every time we hung out with them. <laughs> and then uh, lots of other things happened that kind of brought it all together. But essentially I was just like hammering away on the window knowing that the story was on the other side is it this is it the diarrhea and yep that's in there somewhere oh my god it's them it's that, them being together what an interesting and, concept so you're looking at all of these pieces and you're thinking okay is that a is that an in or is that just a, a note that's going to come up in the story is it a thread that i'll weave through is or is it the the framework through which the entire piece will be experienced because that's the thing about taking a, an audience member on a journey is you, you're, in, you're introducing information specifically and incrementally so as to, um, yes, and 
the reader is awareness of, of the, the situation. And uh, it, is, it's, it is interesting to know what, what we internally sense when we identify the in. It's yeah. almost like you go, oh, that's the thread. That's, that's the one that allows it all to come together. Yes, exactly. And it's like you've just been like fussing around with like a big ball of like a tangle and then you find the thread that just makes it all come undone mm. and you're like, oh, now I can breathe, now I can write, now I can just enjoy this. And but that you, can take months. Yeah, true. Because also and you, you go, now I know what bits to, to highlight and what bits can just fall into the background is like texture or, you know, red yeah, herrings. Yeah. Um, yes. I I love uh, I love talking process. When you do you think that just back to the idea of two days a week, no time to waste. Do you think that the fact that you were on borrowed time allowed you to snap to get out of your own way? Because I think sometimes the worst thing ever is actually just having no restraints or constrictions or delivery dates. Yeah, no, definitely. I knew that was all I was going to get. So I think I've said this to you before, it does feel a little bit like your, um, what's it called, furlough or something where they let you out of jail to like go to a funeral. <laughs> what a specific and beautiful concept. I'm sure the Germans have a word for it, but I do not know what that is. <laughs> so you, you do feel like you, it's a very strict window and you have to be disciplined. And often I wasn't and then the self-doubt would just bury me oh look you're not even you're on furlough and you're still not looking at the sky <laughs> and, and it's like oh well i guess you have to wait another week till you get that day so if you don't so you've punished like your it's your fault oh so true and that's another part of it as well if you i think every everyone experiences self-doubt surely but if it's that at that level of like you can't move past it and you probably do need to like go and see someone, maybe mm. see a therapist, maybe find Jesus, maybe do something that's gonna that's gonna soothe you enough to just have a go, you know. So that's where my mind got to a place where I'm like, something is hugely blocking me. Like something is kind of really trying to um, stop me from doing this. And I had to kind of get past that. Did you? Well, but a lot of stuff. what did you? What did you? Do, was it? Was it one thing? Was it a mindset readjustment? What? What was the? For you, what was the tipping point to actually getting over it and to doing getting the work done? Well, I exposed this um, voice that I had kind of on a very low frequency in the background that was um, just trying to. It was all of my self-doubt and almost like self-loathing. Well, it kind of was self-loathing when I when I actually tuned into it because it wasn't just like, oh, you're not going to be able to do this. This is too hard. It was like, oh, it's so typical that you're not producing this. You are a phony. You are... Um, it was just... Like once I, so that was essentially it. I would have these kind of really quite hateful and hurtful um, dialogues going on and just sort of ignoring them. And they, it was okay. I was like, oh, 
I don't like that. I'm just going to, you know, distract myself or whatever. And there was actually a moment where I was like, no, I am giving that thing the mic. Like I'm, I opened my laptop and I had a blank page and I just let, let all of that out. And it was so like shockingly mean. (laughs) It was like, it was, so I wrote all of this awful stuff about myself. Like you're this, you'll never do that. And here's why, and you don't deserve this and blah, 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 um, on and on. I'll send it to you one day. (laughs) For my birthday. (laughs) Yeah, birthday, your next birthday card. (laughs) But it, so I read it all back and I almost was like, couldn't breathe. Because I was like, this is, this just feels so like hopeless um, that this is kind of inside me. And then I pretty quickly was able to see that it was so extreme that I just couldn't take it seriously. I'm like, imagine someone else said that to me. Imagine I said that to anyone else. I'm like, that's just ridiculous. Like, so I felt like I was really able to like um, tame it. You know, the whole name it to tame it thing. But I, um, I I think something had been hiding in me for a really long time. It was only when I just felt brave enough to, to really bring it out of the shadows, you know. That's such a good tool, though, the idea of giving it the mic and going, okay, let's just see what's the the worst, most guttural, volatile part of me that is there. It's not like it's not there. It's there anyway, but it's so sh- shadowy and surreptitiously dripping its poison into me that I am, you know, it, I'm slowly being killed by this thing. I actually need to just you know, rip it out and look at it for all that it is. And then I can ultimately see it for all that it is and, and disassociate from it. Cause you're like, actually that's, that's completely absurd. I, it's factually not true. Now that I see the facts on paper, I know that those things aren't actually accurate. Therefore mm-hmm. it is a great way to shine a light on it and to get less, have it be less powerful. Yeah. It's, I felt like I grabbed its face and like fucking kissed it. That's what it felt like. I was like, fuck you <laughs> and uh, like it's still here sometimes like I'll 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 sort of acknowledge its presence every now and then yeah but now we're just kind of like hey, hey. Yeah, hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh I yeah what a great short film that would make she would just <laughs> she would just be you but with like a really n- n- like kind of nasty oatmeal sweater and like a, just a scruffier a scruffier haircut <laughs> no she was Jabba the heart oh she was Jabba. yeah basically Jabba I'm like okay and you you're not even original you're Jabba yeah. the heart <laughs> loser <laughs> loser <laughs> oh yeah I mean she's yeah that's that makes sense she's 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 yeah she's not winning um yeah. well I yeah I, I love that so at, at what stage did that was that in the midst of writing the book? Or was it uh, where did it come in the journey of of the year of of two days a week writing? That was in the journey towards the end of the writing process, and that's really the end of the book. That was how I was able to. Actually, I wrote about it a little bit in the book. It's called the Slug. Mm. That's the story, and um, so that was 
Yeah, I'd written so much before that has remained in the book, but that was a way to really um, give give the whole collection like more of an emotional arc. Mm. So I didn't really know that it was holding me back before, and then I and then it's kind of revealed, and then what, the ending is kind of like now I'm just navigating still with all my problems, but a little bit less um, restrained, I guess. Burdened. Mm. In in terms of, so through the process, uh, you're you're able to write, the work is coming together, you have something resembling a book. Along the way, did you need to consult any sort of associates or professionals in order to get feedback on the work? Is it good? Is it ready? Is it, you know, um, uh, in terms of beyond just your own understanding of whether it was finished yeah i did i well i've sent things to michael in the past who is really great he's also like so busy and people send him stuff all the time so he he was really great he gave me a bit of validation and early on he called me out for sounding defensive in in one of um the essays so that was really I kind of already knew because I didn't speak to him for a few weeks after I'd sent it to him. So by the time I spoke to him, I was like, oh, I feel like that piece was defensive. And he was like, yeah. Like it stank. Not not quite that harsh, but it was like, not that the writing was that bad, but the defensiveness was very clear. Um, so I had a few moments like that. But Sam has been a really good sounding board. He's my partner. Um, He's kind of biased, but he'll also tell me if something's like not working, or he'll yeah. say it in a really polite way. He'll he'll do it through a series of questions. He's a you know? the thing good because yeah, also Sam you know works in an adjacent industry. He works in in like an advertising space, so he knows what copy. What, what, how copy works and he's got a great sense of humour so he's probably a good person to be a believing mirror to kind of give you that sort of yeah that's, that's it's good to know and for those who don't have that I, I was actually catching up with a friend last night who was saying that their partner doesn't his partner is not the target market therefore she can't give good feedback and as a result she'll challenge things about the work that is really superfluous and kind of irrelevant to what he's interested in. So he doesn't feel like she's really in his corner. And I was saying, all of this stuff just makes me think she's not the the person for the job. And maybe you need to go and, you know, only if she's really enthusiastic and super excited to to hear your pitches, should you share them. And otherwise, she doesn't need to be involved in the process. Just go and find another one or two friends who can become your confidants and your believing mirrors as Julia Cameron would call it to be able to give you good feedback but ultimately support your process and because uh, you're, not, you're not getting either of those things from your partner but if you're lucky enough to have that in a partner it's definitely worth because also that you, you never have to worry about being demanding too much of them because what are they going to do move out yeah and yeah, so it's fine mm. it's great and he like he, he's really great for like if I'm I finished an essay and I just think it's not right. It's the, the tone's wrong. It's it's too like sad. It's not funny enough. That balance isn't right or whatever. And he's really good saying like, "Don't throw it out." Like 
these are the bits you like so just go back don't quit like so he, he's kind of a good coach in that way mm. but if you can get someone who's a really good editor to look at your stuff like michael is an editor by trade he's not so much now but he's a businessman now but um his background is as an editor mm. for like an amazing publishing house in melbourne and he when he gave me his notes on my manuscript as a finished manuscript mm. it was as if he didn't say line by line there was no um it wasn't a line edit it was like a shape edit so here's what i think the journey is and here's what I think you're saying, and here's maybe how you could make that clearer. And that was like, we we spent like an hour or two together and I walked away feeling like I could read my work as a reader for the first time, not as the author. So he's got some magic powers. If you can find someone who's like actually an editor by trade. Yeah, it's a sweet. Different skill, and it's a very specific skill. It's and a um, great friends who are writers don't necessarily make great editors either. So you, yeah, I would I would actually recommend to anyone who's listening to this who hasn't got a good editor in their periphery to be able to approach with work. And the thing is, and you can probably speak more to this than I can. Sorry, I need to finish one idea before starting another one. Yeah, I'm following. Uh, um, so to finish that thought, find editors. You can find them literally by cold contacting people online who uh, do it for a living and maybe if they're too expensive for you to hire, you can ask for, their, for recommendations. They might have people working underneath them or juniors mm-hmm. and you can pay someone for their time to be an editor. It's a, probably yeah. a really worthwhile investment. But what I was going to say uh, beyond knowing someone who can give you that service is some people might be inclined to reach out to an editor prematurely just for the validation and reinforcement that they're going in the right direction and that it's good. But I would say you don't want to waste the time of someone who you're either asking a huge favor from or paying for their time by giving them work prematurely. Would you say that that would be a good piece of advice for a writer? to wait until they've got something they're really ready to show before sharing yeah, it? Yeah, 100%. Because it, the thing that's most valuable from an editor, I think, is the shape. So if you've got, if, you, if you're not giving them something to shape, um, that's, that's not going to be worthwhile, I don't think, especially if you're using up a favour or like whatever. Hook them in, send them a little piece and say, is this going to, you know, work is this interesting in any way get the validation that way but i wouldn't be like wasting any of those favors or resources until you've got something to like because that's that's where editors shine they see the whole block and they just sculpt something beautiful out of it that's, i've never seen an edit it was amazing mm, that's true actually yeah. you don't you can give them a, a sample what, what's a good size sample when you're looking for, for that collaborator when you, when you were initially reaching out to Michael or you're looking for someone else who could be a, a, a interested potentially in the project, is it is a sample a, a couple of pages, a page, a chapter? A sample um, for me was an essay. That was how I was able to engage like with the publisher and um, then they wanted to see another essay. So it was like um, a 2,000 word 
essay and then like another longer, like 3,000 word essay. But that was after they'd seen the first one. They want to see you've got, you can explore an idea and finish something. And then they want to see that you can back it up. It's probably like, it's like, it's like conversation when someone's like, have you been, you don't want to go straight into the diatribe of the really serious life issue unless you get a follow up question where they're like, oh, so this is happening. What was that like? And then you're like, well, um, you know, you got to give them just a taste and see if they want more. Yeah. And also like the funny, go with the funny one first. That's what I did. Here's my funny. The most entertaining, the most enjoyable, the most light, potentially. The most digestible. Digestible. And then follow it up with like, oh, and here's another little thing that I can do that's slightly different to that. Yeah. yeah that's uh, in terms of, you know, is there any piece of information or tool in your tool belt that you now have you referenced if you were to go back and and look at some of your short form blog writing from the perspective of having done the book now it would have informed that process what are some of the or what is a tool that you had you wish you could impart to yourself at the beginning of your journey that you now have Mm, pay attention to the things that you are just making jokes about so if, there, if, you're, if, if I'm hitting like a one note, this is funny and this is why it's funny and I'm going to be funny again about it, that's like a red flag to me personally because it's like, oh, you're hiding. Don't hide. Come out of the shadows. <laughs> in, in, in that if you find that you're revisiting the same theme so as to make humour out of the same idea and it becomes one note, is that how you can be aware of something that could be worth excavation? Mm, I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. I need to see an actual example from my writing. It just sticks out. Mm. It's something about the style of joke and the way that being used to like deflect from something else. When you literally make the same joke a couple of times. A little bit, yeah, and and I've said, oh, here's here's a thing that's upset me, and here's why it's funny, as opposed to like, here's what happened, and I can just be a little bit more objective, which is hard with memoir. <laughs> you just literally write in your own personal experience with things, but the more time you can have between the experience and actually writing really insightfully about it, I think the better. I mean, to a point, you don't want to forget the incident, but you need that space. Yeah, that really makes sense. And it's interesting, the idea of the way life is so cyclical and themes do reoccur in our in our lives, that something that we looked at in the last chapter of life will usually come up again, but with new parameters. So you, So it would be interesting to dump a bunch of life experience into some work, spend a long time shaping and developing it, and then with the distance from the experience getting better, and then also using it as a sounding board to appreciate your new life experiences, because you're like, oh, that's just like this idea that came up in the work, and I can bring this new learning to that perspective. Totally. The other major thing, now that I'm thinking of it, I think people say this about writing, but don't try and write about everything 
choose one element that you can carry through the idea. Like with my sister and Sam's brother dating, or like I, I wrote this essay about my mum and about dad leaving us and and mum's journey to becoming the woman she is today. Like through it was like spanning freaking. 30 years and was a lot like the story of my mother is is you can't write that in an essay like um so with her it was that the fact that she was always nude when we were growing up she slept in the nude she yelled in the nude she gardened in the nude she sunbaked in the nude she was always nude and so that was Again, the end. So write about your mum being nude. Don't write her whole big story because the rest of her story will come through. That's so true. And that's the thing that my friends who are writers are really good at doing is they are able to put a frame around a small life moment, even if it's talking about something that happened in their week. They're generally great at finding those micro experiences that actually have bigger reflections of a wider experience so the yeah. purpose of you know a book full of observations is you're hoping for you you within that specificity you're looking for mm. that universality that kind of wider life experience but as told in the course of a a minor incident totally and it's just such a generous way to share stories with people because it allows them to just make their own story out of it apply their own meaning like otherwise you're just saying this happened then this happened then this happened then this happened and you're just kind of forcing the reader on a very narrow path mm. isn't that like i feel like these are all i just never knew any of this stuff like i've learned it along the way and it's great i'll just keep learning i suppose we never discuss it though do we because and it really reminds me of like that sort of Marina Abramovich concept of what performance art is and it's the space between the artist and the audience is the the thing that you really explore through the sort of performance artwork that she does. But the idea of the author and the reader, it's, it's actually less about the author's listing of events and more about the author's choice to edit information so as to facilitate an experience for the reader to draw their own conclusions to have their own experiences to bring their own life experience into the the process of reading it's probably why people yeah. love reading so much because it's somewhat allows you to understand your own ex experience in life through reading about someone else's totally and i have definitely not nailed that yet i that's something i really want to get better at i did find myself in moments like Oh, wanting to protect my dad, for example, or oh, I, I just want to conceal this part for some egoic kind of reason, as opposed to it just being like, no, this this doesn't belong to me anymore. Let's make this an experience. This is for someone else. It's not for me. When you were living life while writing a book, would you ever gravitate towards experiences where you thought? This is wild, but it'll make a good story. Oh, completely. And who, I, anytime something vile happens, I find anytime I want to punch someone, if somebody really is just so rude or judging me or whatever it is, if ever I get that feeling like I want to punch this person and I'm like, 
this is a good story. Later. <laughs> I'm going to destroy them with my words. I'm going to crucify them on, on, on the beams exactly. of my, my vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, so do you have now that, because it's, I mean, congratulations. It's such a wonderful thing to have the discipline to be able to do the thing. It's another thing altogether to be able to read the room of the world enough to go, this is my experience, but there's actually relevance to other people in me presenting this part of my experience in this way, which then would incite someone to want to bring it to life as a book and make it allow it to be published. And that that is in itself a feat. So, you know, good on you. It's so beautiful. And I love that you I love that we had a chat probably three years ago about this process that you were just beginning. And also it'll be really interesting, I think in that chat that we did three years ago, which I'm gonna publish after this on the podcast. Which terrifies me because I was like 30 something weeks pregnant and it was middle of summer and I was a potato in a dress, but yes. Potato potato in a blue dress. But she, but no, we, we, it wasn't video. It was just, it was audio. And I, I think that... My brain was that of a potato. I feel like I'm going to sound like an idiot, but that's all right. I, I think that the, the merit of it will be that you were just milling over the writing of some detective fiction that you were writing as well. And you were really, you, you were enamored with the, uh, with the process of writing, but hadn't quite found your in to the the thing that you really wanted to dedicate more time to than anything else to. And I love the idea that those who might hear it will be reminded that the very first thing that you set out to do will probably not be the one. And, and mm. generally it's great to be rem- reminded of all of those um, unrealized dreams that ultimately are not wasted. They're just for the purpose of leading you to the one. And when it's the one, it's, it's the time. But in the meantime, you have to, you can't begin those other processes unless you believed on some level that they could be the one. It's like falling in love. You don't want to marry your first partner, your first boyfriend or girlfriend, because you need to just have a lot of shit relationships before you can get your head around what it takes to have a good one. Basically a detective novella. When I was like in my twenties at some point, I'm like, I'm going to write detective novels. And I went to like dark mofo, one of the early dark mofos, like, in a trench coat, I was like just living my detective novelist fantasy. And I sent it to all these people and they're like, um, why did you write this? I don't know. This wasn't really what we were looking for. <laughs> I submitted it to somewhere that just wanted me to like review one of the art shows at Dark Mova. <laughs> detective novella thinking it was going to set the world on fire, like really deeply committed. And every, everyone I sent it to was like, what? Like it just didn't Brilliant. connect at all. And I remember thinking of that as a huge failure. But it wasn't. No. It was funny and you're, fun. You're, you're like, mi- <laughs> your misanthropic protagonist has not disappeared. She's just taken the trench coat off and had some kids. And now... I've still got the trench. It's all right. <laughs> I, I love that. Well, yeah, all all por- all pictures are self-portrait. So, you know, ultimately it would have just been the version of yourself that you are truly feeling at that time. And now Sad Mum Lady is is this version. Yeah, and that's it. That's what RuPaul says, right? Like you've just got to 
people responded the most to the glamazon thing. So just listen. The glamazon band the world. Listen. Yeah, so. yeah. It's, it's lovely to think that uh, people are going to tell you what you need to know. And sometimes you just need to catch up with what they already can tell before you've even done finished the thing. Um, well, when uh, I love to sort of wrap by talking about if I was to check in with you in a year's time, is there a project that's just a glimmer in your eye right now that you would love to have finished by that time? Yes, I've got a couple. Um, I'll probably have to choose one because time's going to be limited. But um, I want to just write the follow-up to Sad Mum Lady. And working title is Happiness is Embarrassing. But we'll see. <laughs> Cringe. <Anywho>. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you go about it the same way? Would you do two days a week for another year to be able to get there? think so I mean I'm hoping I will have some commitment from um, the publisher who's Alan and Unwin are publishing my um, are publishing Sad Mum Lady so if that kind of goes okay then they might commit to me for a second book and that'll be a lot easier because that will mean um, Sam and I don't have to like revolve our entire finances around that happening they could potentially give me like a bit of an advance and I would just feel like I was just validate that a little bit more you know yeah but it's not always the way it works for writers you kind of just have to write when you can and keep hustling and I hope that you know like it sounds to me like that was a working formula treating those two days as being so sacred because of the sacrifice that has gone into making them possible really would have been a great way for you to just to get the job done because of the finite nature of them and uh i think that that's another reason why some musicians have sophomore slump once they've had a big hit and they've schlepped to get that first album done the second album can be really challenging because they've got some money now you know they've got a big reputation to uphold they you know it's a huge success it's not easy yeah easy back they, up. um so is that um the second thing, damn, I had heard that mm. sophomore slump. Mm. So what it what it might mean for you is if you just got a process that works in terms of like regimented x amount of hours per week to kind of slot in and just do you know you, your your muscle memory would know how to to work within those restraints quite well. It's succeeded for you so far, so it's a good thing to sort of maintain if you if you need to. But I mm. I, I love the idea that you. Um, yeah, that you had to just ex- commit, perform an exorcism to kind of, you know, get out of your own way in that way. I mean, I... Yeah, um, it really was. My, my friends who've had their second baby swear by the, the, the readjustment that you have... Pardon? It's in my condol. <laughs> the, uh, just the fact that you... Uh, if you want something done, you ask a mother of two because she has no time to waste the most effective use of time uh ever is the the moments that you get in between one kid going to sleep and before the other one you know starts demanding something and so yeah the idea of restricting your time is not necessarily a bad thing it can mean that you can be really efficient and effective in a way that someone who had 10 times as much time on their hands wouldn't be able to tap in no that's true as long as the you're not in the same house as the kids. I think that's true. Yeah. If you're in the same house, there's no time. Oh, yeah. But you might get a moment, but you've got to, like, scrape 
the food off the ceiling and um, like stare at a wall for five seconds and scream into a tea towel. <laughs> so you, yeah, but definitely if the kids aren't in the house, the time is like you don't waste a second or you try not to. Um, I, for anyone that uh, discovers this through this conversation, should really follow you on Instagram as well because you have such a wonderful, very cinematic representation of being on, um, on lockdown or just in life lockdown with two small kids. It's just like some beautiful piece of camera stuff, some really kind of French new wave micro shots of like child screaming, child playing, child naked in a, in public. Like it's, it's just, it's... You're so, uh, you're so nice about my Instagram. I, I love it. It's so, it's so beautiful. I think that's, yeah, it's the most perfect example of lemonade from lemons. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's the best. That I, that's the other thing as well with showcasing, like, the harder things in life. When something is genuinely challenging, like your kid being naked at a cafe, it's like, well, this is a moment. I can share this and instantly I feel better. Yeah, because I think, well, that's the thing. Part of the thing I experience is I'm like, I'm sure this is hard and I'm sure it sucks to be in that situation right now, but you've done the best possible job of taking a step back and appreciating the absurdity of the situation and life in general enough to put a frame around it and then share it. And that's what I think is so magical because that is the stuff that it's not only, it's not only like, oh, you're making something entertaining in spite of life. It's actually like you're using life to be able to make something really entertaining. You're putting it to the best possible use out of it. So mm-hmm. it's it's so nice. That's a nice way to think of it. That that has been like a real um, tool to cope. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's it's a beautiful little micro version of 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 what you of the of the blog and of the book, which is just like I'm just going to take this feeling and I'm going to transmute it into something entertaining, even if it's that hard work in the meantime so it's great yeah. mm. I mean that's what we're just trying to do right yeah love it uh, especially in these freaking terrifying um, times let's just have a let's just have a laugh put a frame around it put a frame. <laughs> <laughs> cut print that's a wrap um, <laughs> um, thank you so much for having a chat I know I know like an hour for a busy mom is just a lot it's a gift so thank you so much oh no are you kidding this is heaven my kids aren't at home oh, i did my dance class this morning oh. hi kite on kathy <laughs> this is the best day of my life oh great well <laughs> thank you thank you so much and i um i'm going to this is going to be great like i'm going to get up because i had this problem with the with the my interviews recently where i've been doing the interviews but just taking too long to process them and share them, put them online. But I, I'm going to get this up in the next 48 hours because I want people to be able to witness the the release of the book in in real time. Because you're doing a and a That's another thing I wanted to mention as well. You're, you're doing a and a to promote the book on your Instagram on Tuesday. Is that right? That's right. So my Instagram handle is Ash Davenport, which is A-S-H-E and then Davenport, as you'd imagine. Um, and, yeah, so at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, I'm going to read from the book, and it's story time for the girls, so they'll just be running wild, and I've got a really ridiculous costume that I'm considering wearing. Why not? Whatever it is, dial it up a notch. Just <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> just add a um, smoky eye. 